0: again to the Perimeter Church podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. It's good to be here with you. Uh, Before we, we dig into the text, I just want to remind you, you've probably seen this in the announcements at the week at a glance, but tonight, uh, tonight at 6 o'clock here in the main sanctuary, we are having a a night of worship uh, where we're going to be singing songs that God has used throughout the ages to encourage the saints, and not only songs that we've sung historically, but songs that uh, Laura has written, that she's going to be talking a little bit about the story behind them, and we'll also be hearing from Randy as he discusses just Uh, stories and experiences he's had where there have been people in need and going through times of trial and suffering uh, where God in his mercy healed them. And we're going to end that night with an invitation to come for prayer if that's something that you need. And so we would really love for you to come and be a part of that with us. It's going to be a really fitting end, I think, uh, to this series we've been in the midst of about suffering as Christians. This morning we are turning back in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8 And if you uh, have not been with us these past few weeks, uh, Randy has been slowly but surely making us face something that sometimes we don't really want to face. This reality that in this life, even if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, suffering is something that you are going to face. It's not an accident. It's not an obstacle to the glory that God has promised. Instead, what Paul says here in this text is, is that suffering is actually the very pathway to glory. Before there is resurrection, there is first the cross. And in the verses we're going to be looking at today, we find a gracious and merciful Savior who offers to us food that would sustain us as we make our way along that path. It's food that we need. So we're going to read now, starting in verse 18, and we're going to focus on verses 22 to 25, but I want us to hear the context. Heavenly Father, we come to you as a people who who need you to speak truth to hearts that are far too often deceived. And Lord Jesus, we pray through your spirit, take this text, take this sermon, take every single portion of what we are doing here this morning, and Lord, use it to conform our hearts, our desires, our passions, everything about us more and more and more into your image. So that we would leave this place, Lord, not only knowing what is true about this life, Not only knowing what is true about the hope that you offer, but Lord, believing it and trusting in it and walking by faith in it in ways that when we came in, we were not able to do. We pray, do this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Suffering and sorrow are not things that we get to skip in this life, are they? When I came to Christ, I think I intellectually knew that that was true. I knew that Jesus had saved me from the penalty of sin but that I still lived in a time when I would not be free from the presence of sin. I knew that I was a beloved child of a Most High King, my Father in heaven, who loved me and cared for me and would not let me go, but I also knew that Jesus had said that in this world I would not have peace and joy and prosperity and health and all those things. Instead, what did Jesus say? In this world I would have tribulation. But it so often happens Those things that we know intellectually, they don't actually hit home until we've tasted them experientially, do they? One of those moments for me was in 2007. Some buddies and I, we would get together every Wednesday night, and we would watch this TV show that was really popular at the time. The show that we all were convinced was the greatest show that had ever hit the television, but when the final episode aired, we decided it was the worst show because it led us down a rabbit hole that had no end. This little show called Lost... And if you saw this show, it was a weird, weird show. There were smoke monsters and these people called the Others that lived on this island. You didn't know why they were there. And there were questions of, are they dead? Are they alive? Are they in purgatory? What is this? And we just would get together and we would debate this show for hours. And for us, it was kind of the way to relieve stress at the end of a long day. I would come after middle school youth group. My friend would have taped it. We would all watch it. Well, this particular night... It didn't go as planned. I sat down on the couch and I saw my phone light up and it was a number that I knew but one that had never actually called me before. It was a girl that I'd known at UGA and that I knew one had not called me but two would not have called me at this time of the night unless something was really wrong. And so I walked out the door of the apartment and I walked out to the stairs outside And I answered the phone, and when I heard the voice on the other side, I knew immediately that she'd been crying. She said, Caleb, do you remember Michael? And I said, Yeah, I remember Michael. I remembered Michael because he'd been one of the first guys that I'd been a part of leading to Christ. I remembered Michael because I had sat on the back porch of my college apartment and I had shared the gospel with him. I remember praying with him. I remember rejoicing with him. I remember watching as God took this man and flipped his life upside down so that this guy who had been running from Jesus became one of the most vocal and passionate evangelists in the name of Jesus that I had ever come across. I remembered him. And she said, Caleb, last night he died. He was hanging out with his friends and they went back to his apartment and he started acting sick and at first they didn't really think anything of it but it got worse and worse and worse until finally his buddies started to panic and so they took him to the hospital. And when they got him there they found out he had something called viral meningitis. And within a few hours my friend was dead. Sick one moment, gone the next. 23 years old and I sat on that back step on those stairs and I remember just sitting for a few moments and crying because I knew in the very core of my being deep in my bones that this was not the way it was supposed to be that this was not the way it was supposed to go and I wish As so many of us wish, I wish that's the only phone call like that I've ever gotten. But over the years, there have been calls about suicides and accidental deaths and divorces and adultery and abuse and infertility and diagnoses from doctors that nobody wants to hear. And over and over and over again, what has been hammered home is this, is that we live in a world that is not the way it was created to be, that is not the way it is supposed to be, a world from which no one in this room is immune. It's a world where 23-year-olds die, where children starve, where hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes strike in ways that seem arbitrary and random, and sometimes to us make absolutely no sense. A world where, even as believers, we find ourselves with our hearts in conflict because we want to follow Jesus, but our hearts, they're not quite the way they're supposed to be yet, are they? This world that so often feels Like the bird that flew into my house when I was in elementary school and desperately wanted to escape but ended up just slamming into a window over and over and over again. Desperately wanting to be free but not able to get out. A world that aches. A world that weeps. A world that groans. And what Paul says in this text Is that it's not just this world, this creation around us that groans. It is you and I who have the first fruits of the Spirit and who have tasted of the mercy of Christ as well. He doesn't sugarcoat it, he doesn't pretend that everything is going to be easy for you. Paul says, No, in this life, you and I, we are going to suffer. We're going to groan, but ours is a groaning that doesn't end in despair. It's a groaning that is eager and a groaning that is filled with joyous expectation because we know this. In Jesus Christ, we have received what we see here in verses 22 to 25, a sure hope. Paul says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul, in this text, he's speaking to the very nature of hope, isn't he? Hope is not some object that you and I presently hope in our, hold in our hands. Hope is something that you and I long for, but that we do not presently possess. Hope is something that we do not yet see, and we do not yet touch, and we do not yet feel. Hope is this thing that is distant from us, but that we hope to have, that we long to have, that we yearn to have, because it is the thing we realize we need, and the thing that sustains us while we live in this fallen and broken world. And we see that reality of that unseen hope everywhere around us, don't we? Hope is the reason that every fall I turn on my television and I watch Georgia football. The hope that maybe this year we'll get to relive 1980 and some quarterback with a name I can't pronounce won't throw the football into the left-hand corner of the end zone. Hope, as a young parent, that maybe there will be a day when my daughters are just a little bit older And they'll sleep through the night a little more consistently and maybe they'll use the potty the way I want them to and not need my help. There's the hope that sustains the athlete when his knee is absolutely obliterated on the soccer field. That hope that if he goes through surgery and if he goes through rehab that maybe someday he'll get back on that field and he'll run the way he used to run. Hope is the reason that so many, when they've been diagnosed with cancer, are willing to undergo chemotherapy, even though they know it's painful and they know it hurts, and they know in some ways it will make them feel sicker than they already do, but they undergo it for this reason, because they are hoping that the chemotherapy will kill the cancer and not them. Hope is something that we do not yet see but that we cling to in the midst of pain and suffering because it is the only thing that sustains. Paul says in many ways that's what Christian hope is like. All through the book of Romans, Paul has been giving us this beautiful picture of this God in heaven who has loved us in Jesus Christ. A father who so loved his people that while we were still sinners, he shows his love for us in this, he sent his son to die who sent that Son to die, that you and I who come to Him, we would no longer be condemned because Jesus would have borne that condemnation. A people who once were dead but now have the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in our hearts so that we would more and more put to death the things of the flesh and put to death the things of sin and live to Christ instead. That by that same Spirit, you and I who once were afraid of God and once trembled to think of coming into His presence, we would cry by that Spirit, Abba, father not as slaves but as beloved children and Paul says all of those things are true right now you may still struggle with sin you may still fall to temptation but if you are in Christ Jesus then you are presented before the father as one washed by the blood of the lamb holy and blameless and above reproach You may face trial and tribulation, but at this moment you are a beloved child of the Most High King who holds you in His righteous right hand and is never going to let you go. That is true right now. But there are some things, there are some things we're waiting for. Because while right now we cry, Abba, Father, the reality, as Paul says here, is we have not yet experienced that adoption in full. We're waiting for a day when we will stand before the Father, not as those who still have doubts and reservations, as those who still have worries that maybe he will cast us off, but instead as those who've been freed, not just from the penalty of sin, but even the presence of sin, as those who don't live in bodies that decay and die and crumble to dust anymore, but instead as those who, just like Jesus, have been raised to new life in glorified bodies, unstained by sin, unstained by sorrow, never to be captured by death again. And Paul says, that day, it's coming, That is the hope of every single believer. That is the hope of all of creation that is groaning with us because they know when that day comes, everything in this whole world will be made new. But Paul says that day that is coming, it is not here yet. He's saying what John says in 1 John 3, the same thing we confessed just a few moments ago. Beloved, we are God's children now but what we will be has not yet appeared. It's a hope in something that is yet unseen. But here's what sets Christian hope apart from every other hope. This hope, unlike all the others, it's a sure one. It's not just an unseen hope. It's a hope that's been secured. All those hopes that I mentioned before, the hope that if you go through chemotherapy you might escape cancer, that hope that if you go through rehab you might get your knee to do the things that it used to do, that hope that maybe someday Georgia will win the big football game, every single one of those, none of them are sure, are they? Every single one of those is contingent on a million different things. Every single one of those is actually completely outside of our control. And we don't actually know if we undergo those things if we'll get the thing that we hope for. And even if we do, even if we beat cancer, even if our knee heals, even if Georgia wins, the problem is this, we'll wake up the next day and realize that we may have beaten it in that moment, but there is still more to come and we don't really have a sure hope for that either. Because while we may have beaten cancer, death is still going to come. While our knee may have been healed, there will be a day when it will buckle again, either in life or in death. And that no matter what it is that we get a hold of in this life, none of it in the end is secure and none of it is truly hope because in the end, death is going to pry it from our cold, dead fingers. And you see it in the way so many of us live our lives. We numb ourselves by scrolling through thousands upon thousands of Netflix movies, hoping to find something just to fill the time so we can numb ourselves to the reality of what's coming the next day. We fill our lives, the pursuit of possession, of relationships, sex, pornography, drinking, whatever it might be, and we try to get as much as we can in this life, at this moment, because we know that when our head hits the pillow, there is nothing in this world that gives us any eagerness for the day to come. Because the same problems will be there, and death will still be waiting, and nothing has actually been resolved, and the only hope we have is what we can get in this world, and even that, it is not secure. Paul says, That's not you if you are in Christ. This may be a hope unseen, but it is not a hope that is insecure. Paul is looking out at God's people and he is saying, do you see the one who has saved you? You have a hope given to you by God the Father, purchased for you by God the Son, and sealed for you by God the Spirit to all who have received the first fruits of that Spirit. You have a hope that has been secured for you by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ himself, one who doesn't just hear our groaning, who doesn't just know that we suffer, who doesn't just know that we feel pain, but has actually experienced that himself. And who knows that groaning more deeply and acutely than you and I could ever imagine because he is the only one who has experienced this broken world. He's the only one who's experienced it as one whose heart actually doesn't contain any sin. He's the only one who has ever borne the full wrath of God for sin. He's the only one who knows what it is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, as John Newton once said, he is the one who drank the cup of unmixed wrath so that you and I could drink a cup of affliction, but one that is filled with many mercies. He's the one who says to you and I, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Romans 8 says that as surely as Jesus has been raised from the dead, as surely as God so loved you that while you were still a sinner, he entered into the death that you deserved, as surely as the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, as verse 11 says, dwells in your heart, As surely as you cry, Abba, Father, just as surely will you one day stand in the presence of the Father and receive your adoption as full. Just as surely will your body be lifted from the grave, restored, repaired, and healed in ways that even in this life you have not experienced brought to life in the way that only Jesus now knows as one who is fully alive. On a day when that bird that has been slamming into the window over and over and over again finally flies towards it and finds that the glass is gone and they are finally free. That's the hope that God has given us. And it's not an insecure one. It's a sure one. hope that you and I can groan for and groan for eagerly because we know if it has come from his hands if it has been purchased by the blood of Christ and if it has been sealed by the spirit there is no one who can undo what God has done that's our hope and God in his mercy he's given us more than that he's given us not just a sure hope he's given us a sure help as well In verse 26 and 27, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul says, you may have a sure hope But there is a weakness that still remains in us as believers. And it's one that every single one of us knows, even if you haven't really put words to it yet. And it's this, is that in this life, you and I, we are finite creatures. We have limited knowledge, we have limited understanding, we have limited comprehension. And even the things that we do have knowledge of, our understanding and our ability to use that knowledge, it is impaired by sin. We don't see clearly. We're those who see in a mirror dimly. We are like people living in a fog who can barely see our hands in front of our faces. That is the world we inhabit right now. It's a world where often we don't know what to do. We see the things in front of us. We know what the will of God is revealed in his word says, but sometimes in specific instances, in specific moments, we're not sure what the next step is. And nowhere does that show up more in prayer, does it? You know, when I think about prayer, it's confusing to me sometimes. You know, I pray for my three daughters every single day and what I pray, it follows a pretty specific list. I pray that they would never know a single hour when Jesus Christ was not their savior. I pray that they would have hearts that are tender to God's leading. I pray that as those who have received mercy, they would be those who show mercy. I pray That they would be those who know God's grace and his tenderness so deeply and profoundly that God would use them as a means of grace to invite many into the kingdom. I pray that their children and their children's children and their children's 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 children experience all those same things. I pray for their spouses. I pray for their hearts. But here's what I often don't know what to do about. I don't know what's going to happen to my daughters in the next five minutes, let alone the next five years. I don't know how God has uniquely and perfectly formed each individual little girl that he has placed in my stewardship. I don't know the exact needs of their hearts. I don't know the sins and the temptations that they'll battle. I don't know the experiences that are sitting in front of them and is one who doesn't know any of those things and who oftentimes wants things for my daughters that I probably shouldn't want because I don't want them to ever get hurt. There's a lot of times my prayers are mumbling and stuttering and uncertain because I do not know what to pray. Paul says God in his mercy has given you a help to set your prayer free. The Spirit of God who intercedes for you with groans too deep for words. And there's two things about this Spirit that I want you to leave here with. First, the Spirit is the one who prays for you the things you actually need. You know, we always hear about Jesus as our intercessor. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus pleading his finished work on our behalf and saying to the Father, here are your people, holy and blameless and above reproach because of my work on their behalf. We hear that, we know that, we love that, but we tend to forget that God has not left us with just one intercessor. Paul says there's another one who doesn't just sit in the throne of God, but who sits in the very seat of your affections, one who knows you and your heart and your life more deeply and intimately than you could ever dream, and who doesn't just know you, but knows every single thing in all this world, the Holy Spirit himself. And that Spirit prays for you the prayers you need based on knowledge that you do not possess. I'll give you an example of how that might look. I have always had a really, really hard time finding suits, particularly jackets that fit. Uh, When I was a part of one of my buddy's weddings, I remember going to the tuxedo fitting and the guy was trying to like measure me and he said, and I couldn't tell if it was like a jab or if it was a joke, he's like, man, you're you're just built funny, so this is not going to fit very well. And he was right. I, I looked like an idiot. It hung on me like a bunch of trash bags. And the first time that I bought a suit, my experience was pretty similar to that. My dad gave me some money because he thought as someone graduating college that I needed a suit because everybody needs one of those and so he sent me alone with no knowledge to a store in Athens that I didn't even research because I'm not that smart about these things and I walk inside and I say, I need a suit, help me, thinking someone with knowledge would help me. That is what they did not do. They did not point me to the kind of suit my dad told me to get, and I didn't know enough to say no. But not only that, when it came to measuring me, they just kind of slapped this thing around my shoulders and said, yeah, 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 this will work. And I walked out with a suit that made me look like a child wearing their daddy's clothes. That was the suit I wore for years because I didn't have another one. It fit terribly. When I got ready to graduate seminary, my father-in-law... Because my wife was whispering in his ear, and she cares about these things, he gave me a very different experience. For my birthday and Christmas, he decided, since I was going to work at a church in Augusta that asked that I wear a suit and tie every single Sunday, that I needed some suits that actually fit. And so he took me to the guy who made all of his suits for work. He took me to the guy who altered all of his suits for him, who made sure that they fit perfectly and he and my brother-in-laws, they helped me look through the different suits and figure out which ones would actually like work and which ones were versatile so you could mix and match the jackets and the pants, all these things I didn't know about. And then this guy did what the first salesman never did. He measured my shoulders carefully. He measured my arms. He measured my waist. He measured every single part that he needed so that he could create and alter the suit so that when I walked out the door a few days later, The suit and jacket that I had always needed but never had would finally be mine. He tailored it perfectly based on the knowledge that he possessed. The Holy Spirit knows more than your chest size. The Holy Spirit is the one who judges us of sin and of righteousness, or convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit is one who is God is able to do what Augustine says, he comprehends all things with an incomprehensible comprehension who sees the very beginning of history and the very end and every twist, every turn, every wrinkle in between and sees it all and experiences it all not as we do as linear time but as a stable and eternal present. There is nothing he sees and knows that is not comprehended in a split second. There is nothing that escapes him. And it is this Spirit sitting in your heart, interceding for you with groans too deep for words, who offers up the prayers that you and I actually need. Because He actually knows your heart. He knows all the things about you that you don't even know about yourself. He knows the sins that you love too much to pray against, and so He prays against them for you. He knows the trials that are coming down the pipe. He knows how hard they will be to endure, and so he is praying, even at this moment, that God would give you strength to sustain so your faith would not falter. He knows my daughters. He knows every single prayer that I should be uttering, but I am not uttering, and he utters them on my behalf in a language I cannot hear or understand, but that God the Father does. And what is glorious about that is that his prayers, every single one of them, are effective. Verse 27 says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes God says no to us when we pray. Sometimes I ask God for things I shouldn't ask him because I don't understand things, and sometimes I ask them because I'm sinful and I want things that I should not want. And so God in his mercy does to me what he does to everybody here. Sometimes when I'm like a child asking for ice cream when when I really need his veggies, God says no. That never happens to the Spirit. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in perfect harmony and perfect unity from eternity past to eternity future. There is nothing in which they are out of sync. The Father who searches the heart and who knows the mind of the Spirit and the Spirit who prays for the saints according to the will of God Each and every prayer that is offered, it is a prayer that is perfectly in alignment with the will of the Father and that the Father receives and embraces because the will and the desire are matched in his own so that when we are drowning in darkness and in sorrow and in pain and we don't know what to say and we don't know what to ask, we turn to one who even now is uttering for us with groans too deep for words the prayers that we need but never prayed and each and every one receives from our Heavenly Father a hearty yes and a hearty amen. That's the help you've been given. Our God in heaven He's not insensitive to our weakness. He's not insensitive to the pain and the suffering of this world. has not cast you off without hope and without help. He has provided for you both in full so that we can groan and groan eagerly. About a month ago, I started following a man named Douglas Grotheis on Twitter. He's a philosophy professor at Denver Seminary And I started following him for reasons that I don't usually follow people. Uh, Usually I follow people because I'm feeding my book addiction and they have some Kindle deals that they post every day or they're giving me some news about the world that I want to engage with or there are people that provoke my thoughts and help me to think well theologically. Douglas groth is different. I started following Douglas groth because day after day, tweet after tweet, he has been documenting his emotions as he watches his wife, Becky, die. She was a genius, a former member of Mensa, a writer and editor and publisher of books. A woman that Dr. Groteheist would say in every way was his intellectual superior and what he is documenting is watching this woman who was so strong and so capable, slowly but surely fade away because she has frontal lobe dementia. And every tweet is a groan. It's the groan of a man who's realized that he has attended church for the last time with his wife. Of a man who realizes that this woman who used to edit his books and sharpen all of his lectures that now she has been so reduced that she cannot even pick up a phone and dial a number to a friend. It's the groan of a man who watches his doctors and caregivers treat his wife as though she's a child or sometimes as though she's not even there. It's a man who's weeping, a man who's hurting, but what is beautiful but what he is showing about himself and his heart on Twitter is this. They are not the groans of despair. They're the groans of a man who knows that even as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he need fear no evil because Jesus is with him. They're the groans of a man who knows that while he is watching his wife fade away and one day she will fade away in body as well, that there will be a day when Jesus Christ himself will take her face in his hands and he will restore her in such a way that she will be beyond anything that he experienced in this life, even when she was in her prime. It's the groans of a man who knows he lives in the tension of the already and the not yet That he is a beloved child now, but what he will be and what his wife will be and what the saints will be and what this world will be, it has not yet appeared, but one day it will be. He puts it this way in his book, Walking Through Twilight When I look at Becky's face, happy or sad, I see what has been taken away, and I see what no earthly cure can touch. But I know that God's favor has not been taken away from this child, that her awareness and intelligence will be restored. But we are still walking through twilight and into a night when no one can work, and God is working still. Romans 8 says that is the confidence that you and I and every believer in Jesus Christ possesses at this moment. We may be walking through twilight. We may be walking into a night when no one can work. But our God is working still. And he has not left us without help. And he has not left us without hope. He has given us sure ones. That we would be those who groan not in despair, but eagerly. As those who know that what we wait for, it will surely come. And so we say with all God's people, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you're a God who has provided for our every need. That, Lord, you have met us in our weakness, not just with the Savior for our sins, not just with one who died and who rose, but, Lord, even with this, with one who sustains us as we walk through this very path of suffering, who carries us so that we can actually carry the cross that we have to carry as we follow you and who promises us that there is a resurrection to come. Hold us now. Send us now. Equip us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.